I often get asked by listeners how they can support the show, and now I have a way that you can. So you can support the show through the ACAST supporter feature. Just go to supporter.acast.com slash yogaland. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. I so appreciate any contribution you want to make and know that the funds go toward paying my producer and other people who help me create this show. That's supporter.acast.com slash yogaland. Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti. This is Yogaland. Before we start the episode, I have a few announcements. The first is that Jason's 2023 online course schedule is up on our website. So if you're interested in studying with Jason online, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash schedule, and you'll see all of the different offerings when they're being offered, and you can sign up on the wait list or even register. Right now we have the Art of Beginners open and sequencing is open on an ongoing basis as well. The other announcement is that I've started a community over on Substack. I don't know if you're familiar with Substack, but I've discovered it in the past couple of years and I really love it. And it's been very exciting for me to start a new creative project. And it's a great way for me to be able to actually connect with those of you out there in the community without having to use social media. So you can go to yogaland.substack.com. You can either become a free member or a paid member for $6 a month, or you can do a yearly subscription and you'll get different levels of access to meditations that I'm creating, weekly intention, behind the scenes of the podcast and different essays and articles that I'm writing. I'm also going to be starting more community engagement with paid members. So that's something I'm really genuinely looking forward to. You can go over to yogaland.substack.com. And if you sign up, be sure to download the app because the app just makes it really easy to read things on your phone and to discover other great writers on there as well. Thanks for listening and onward with the episode. Today, my guest is Jill Miller. Jill is the author of the new book, Body by Breath, Science and Practice of Physical and Emotional Resilience. In all likelihood, you are familiar with Jill. This is her fifth time being on the podcast. The first time she was on, I think we talked about her first book, which is called The Role Model, R-O-L-L. It's a little play on words. She's good at those. But to offer a little bit of background, Jill is the co-founder of TuneUp Fitness Worldwide and creator of the self-care fitness formats, Yoga TuneUp and The Role Model Method. With more than 30 years of study in anatomy and movement, she's a pioneer in forging relevant links between the worlds of fitness, yoga, massage, athletics, and pain management. She is a brainiac. There's really no other way to put it. And this book spans so much, and you will learn so much from it. You'll learn so much about the nervous system, about the fascia, about the vagus nerve, about your emotions and the connection between your emotions and your proprioception and interoception, about pain management, about some ways that you can help yourself if you're experiencing long COVID, uh, and of course, most importantly, about the breath and how you can uh, work with your breath to continue to create and compound emotional and physical resilience. So we dive into these topics in the interview, 
And we try to be as linear as possible, but just like the connection between the mind and the body, everything is intertwined. And so there are so many other ways that you can learn from this book. One of them is that I am going to do a book club on Substack for the book. So you can access that at yogaland.substack.com and you'll have to sign up to join. And I will lay out ideas, chat threads, practices that we can do as we move through the book together over the course of four weeks. And then Jill will also come on and do a Q&A with book club members. I started the book club, I've been thinking about it for a long time because I often do these interviews and I'm so fascinated by the books and the topics and the authors. And then I just have to kind of rush and move through to the next interview. So I wanted to give myself an opportunity to digest and incorporate the practices and also just to connect with you a lot more. I would love that. And this is an easy way for all of us to do it. So please go check that out. Also, Jill mentions at the end of the interview that if you pre-order the book now, she's bundled a bunch of perks with it. So different things like access to a class in her digital library, access to, I believe, an online class with her, a live class, uh, and the possibility of being entered into a lottery to attend one of her in-person courses. So you can learn more about that at Body by Breath. Dot com And I will put all of these links in the show notes, as well as links to the past interviews that I did with Jill. Because going back and reviewing the Vegas Nerve interview in particular will really help you as you move through this discussion. Okay, I think I've done all the housekeeping. I would like to just get to that interview with Jill so you can learn more from her. And I look forward to seeing you in the book club and hearing all about what you think about the book. Hello, hello, Jill. How are you? Andrea, I'm so happy to be talking to you. I am too. I'm so happy that you're back. Um, you are one of my mo- most repeated guests. This is our fifth podcast together. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> this is the first podcast that I've been on five times. So, Oh, really? So cool. Yes. So my other most most frequented podcast is David Lazondak Body Talk. So he has a, a a podcast that looks at the world of movement, but from a, a fascial and mechanical lens. So I think I'm going on my fourth one with him next week. So but you're the winner. I'm the winner. Oh my gosh, I win. <laughs> Go power. I had no idea. Um, Well, I'm just really excited for you to be here and to share your new book with everyone. Last time you were on, we talked about the Vegas. um, And at the end of that interview, you said with a big sigh, I'm working on a book. It's going to be out soon. And um, I will... I will send you an early copy. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. You'll come back on. So here we are. You made it. You made it to the other side. You did it. How are you feeling? Oh my gosh. I want to cry just thinking about that because you're imitating the sound of my voice, which is probably how I sounded to most people for the last two years. Mm. It was, I mean, I don't want to say crisis writing, but it was so hard to finish this book. I mean, this book is eight years in the making and there were so many obstacles and so many challenges, which was perfect to write a book about resilience. Um, And, you know, inside of a pandemic and um, dealing with 
with my own shvilkas around, you know, the rising tide of anxiety and stress and unknowns in the world. Right. Um, so it was very, very difficult to bring that book to completion, but my God, it is, it's out. And I am so excited for it to have its own life now outside of my body. Yeah. I'm excited for you too. And when I got it in the mail, I thought, oh my gosh, how did she do this? I mean, it's it's a tome, it's an opus, it's a it's a it's a masterpiece, and I don't say that lightly. I really don't. And um, I'm really grateful to you for writing it because to me, it takes just all of these disparate ideas that are out there um, in in the in all of the sort of wellness yoga neuroscience circles. And it it puts everything together in a very cohesive way um, and in a very detailed way. And, and yet you also kind of broke it up into very digestible. There's lots of sidebars. There's lots of inroads to getting into the content. There's lots of imagery. Um, so you can kind of digest it in different ways. And I'm sure I'm going to be going through it um, often. Actually, I will mention that I'm going to do a book club for this book on my Substack, <laughs> which is a new project for me. And you're going to be my first book. Oh my gosh. That's like, to me, that's like winning the Mega Millions lottery, <laughs> like statewide, multi-state lottery. I am so honored to have this book selected for that opportunity and for that visibility and for that analysis, especially yeah. through your incredible mind and your, uh, your observation. So I'm, I'm so humbled. My, I told my publisher yesterday and my husband, and I mean, we were like, my face was cracking. I was so high all day. Honestly, <laughs> thank you. Of course. Of course. I mean, I just, it's really the perfect book to start with because when I do these interviews, I prepare for them. I work really hard on them. And then it's just gone for me and I have to move on to the next project. And this will really allow me and everyone else to digest all of this information that you've put together over time, over weeks, and to discuss it and do some of the practices and talk to you about it. So I will put information, you guys, at the end of the podcast about how to join the book club. But um, yeah, like I said, it's just that Sophia saw me reading the book this morning and said, you have to interview her today. It's mommy, do you have to read that whole book? And I said, well, I do. But at the same time, I'm just going back and forth and back and forth through the chapters. So we were kind of talking before this that um, I would love to know, and I know this is going to be hard to summarize, but I think it's always helpful for people to know the writer's intention. So I would love to know when you decided to embark on this project, and I'm sure it, it, changed and evolved over time as things do. But what was it in you that felt like I have to get this out into the world? So this book has always been on my mind um, as not the book, but my I, I've been sharing this methodology and this approach, these applications since I was my goodness. I, I mean, I mean, some of the practices in here probably carbon date in my body um, all the way back to being a 19 year old. 
And so I'm 51 now. So they've aged in my body, you know, 32 years. I mean, yoga has aged in my body since I was 11, but the journey through my body in order to deal with my own mental health um, is is a very, very vast and interesting journey. Mm-hmm. And not that this book is the story of my life, but this is really the story of process-based work that has an incredible number of ramifications into so many different systems of the body, through the body. And the book is not exclusively about breath work, but if I have to say like the title, Body by Breath, for thinking about the breath work component of the book, because there are many components of the book, but obviously the title is Screaming Breath at You, so why the breath? The, the biggest instigator there is my mother is has very severe asthma. She's had severe asthma since she was a child. And I can remember waking up to ambulances coming to our house in the middle of the night to take her away. And so very early in life, I learned if you don't breathe, you die. Mm. Second to that, I remember I used to train, I used to be a singer. That was my goal in life was to be a singer. And uh, we did not have a lot of money, but my mom, my mom supported that dream. And she's like, I want you to tap dance on Broadway kid, you know? And so she, um, I got me a, a voice lesson every week. I had a voice lesson and auto harp. Uh, that was my instrument. Yeah. Auto harp folks. I don't know why we found that instrument, but we did. And very so eighties instrument, isn't it? Yes. It would yeah, be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm the same age as you. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I remember my voice teacher teaching me how to breathe and talking to me about the respiratory diaphragm at a very early age, fast forward yoga in the yoga space, they would talk about the diaphragm. So I had this, these core memories of breathing for life-saving. I had um, breath as, or the diaphragm and breath as this vital thing for performance and for, you know, instrumentation basically. So those were, those were two leading, uh, leading things, but, you know, I I've come up with this entire methodology that's circling all around sense perception, pain reduction, um, emotional regulation, of course, breath and movement mechanic improvements. And so there's a lot more there, there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So why don't we kind of zoom out since like you said, there is so much. I would like to eventually (laughs) zoom in on, on the breath and kind of what yogis can take away uh, from from your work, but I'd love to start by saying, you know, if you had to sum up three to four key things that you would like people to take away from from your book, what what would they be? Uh, I would say that mental health is a body wide phenomenon. It doesn't live in your head. Mm-hmm. And breath work is your access point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's one for sure. So, okay. So let's unpack that. One of the things that you have taught me is just, well, I would say, and you mentioned Stephen Porges a lot throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think you and Stephen Porges have been the biggest influences on the way that I think about mental health 
I've, you know, obviously doing yoga for as long as I've done yoga, like I understand embodiment and I understand that there is the mind body connection, but, um, look at you two have kind of clued me into the actual literal connection between the brain and the body through the nerves and the yeah. nervous system and the vagus nerve. Um, so when you say, you know, mental health is, is not just mm. mental, what does that mean for you in your, in the way that you want to help people care for themselves or in, in your own self-care practices? I'll talk through a little bit of my own personal history. So around age 11, 12, so I was an overweight kid. I grew up super fed, super chubby, super not a big mover, big reader, not interested in anything physical at all. I mean, I walked the dogs, read my books, played with my dolls, ate a lot of Oreos, a lot of a lot of hamburgers, fast food, that sort of thing. And I started getting teased a lot, especially in sixth grade. I was the shortest kid in the class and the roundest kid in the class. And I had really big, thick glasses. Something must have happened. Um, something did happen during sixth grade. My mom brought home the Jane Fonda workout and the Raquel Welsh yoga video. May she rest in peace, by the way, Raquel Welsh, um, an amazing actress, an amazing pioneer in the yoga space. I would not have ever practiced yoga at age 11 had it not been for her uh, production of true health or true beauty. I think her first video was called true beauty, but it was actually the Bikram series. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yes. And, and we, we lived off the grid in a solar home in Santa Fe. So we didn't have TV. So if we were going to watch something, it was going to be a video. So my mom brought home these videos and we started to do them together and um, they were very difficult. I mean, I was so, you know, unconditioned, deconditioned. So was my mom. But my mom fell off after about two weeks, but I didn't. I became absolutely obsessed with them and became compulsive in needing to practice them every single day. And if I didn't, I was a mess. Coupled with, I started starving myself. So what I now know, I spiraled into orthorexia, right? Over-exercising, under-eating, and then I just developed this insatiable um, interest in the human body and read everything I could. I also was very aware that I was actually spiraling into an eating disorder because I remember checking out books from the library about anorexia, reading about anorexia, um, but not knowing how to help myself. In the meantime, you know, using doing you know, these videos were very soothing to me, very helpful in a chaotic, um, chaotic house. And when we lost that house, my family went bankrupt. Um, we had to, we had lots of divorces and all that kind of um, 70s, 80s drama. So, um, I guess to, I'm not sure if I've told the story on your podcast before. I imagine that I, that I might have, by the time I got to college, I was not starving myself, but I was throwing up instead. So my eating disorder transitioned to bulimia and during college, during freshman year of college, I went to an open house at a massage school, at a shiatsu massage school. And I volunteered to be the um, volunteer. I mean, the teacher asked for a volunteer to demonstrate something. And so I went into the middle of the circle and I remember the teacher placed his palm on the center of my abdomen. 
And no one had ever touched my belly before, except mm-hmm. maybe when I was a kid. I mean, I just don't ever remember somebody touching my abdomen. And I remember feeling this, these waves of warmth and pleasure and floating and falling and being held, everything, everything, and tears, like everything all at the same time. I just remember for the first time in my life, feeling this unbelievable sense of connection and bliss through my abdomen. Fast forward, put put a button on that. Mm. Fast forward, I am not feeling pleasure or bliss or anything in my core. Typically, I'm just busy throwing up or over-exercising to not feel what's Mm -hmm. inside of there. And my roommate in college was pre-med and uh, I managed to help her get enrolled in the Pilates class in the dance school. I was in the performance uh, school there. And so I knew how to get her to be able to enroll in that. It was all dancers in there. But then there was my pre-med um, best friend who, you know, we shared a room together, got her in there. And she would always complain about being sore after these Pilates classes. And I was never sore. I was just like, I was because I was just limbing it. I was using other parts of my body to make it look like I was contracting the right things, but I just never felt anything. I was just a big blank space mm-hmm. in, in, in my center. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was doing work study. I must've been doing, I was doing work study everywhere during college um, at a yoga studio near the campus. And I remember telling the yoga teacher that I couldn't feel my abs Mm-hmm. And I I knew that was like I should be sore because the Pilates department is very good, very good instruction. Everybody else is sore. I'm not sore. Not like I'm some superhero of strength. I told her that I couldn't feel my core, and so she showed me this tool. It's a Yangar prop that was a bean bag shaped like a hamburger bun, mm-hmm. and it was used for headstand. I think I think that's the tool that they use for headstand. But she said lay face down on it on your belly and breathe. So she did a belly bolster with you. That's what they called it in Iyengar. Yeah. Yes. But this really was like laying on concrete Mm -hmm. on top of tattered viscera Mm -hmm. that that are not used to deep touch, nor are they used to being heard, seen, or felt Mm -hmm. within within a thousand miles because Mm -hmm. I couldn't be further away from connecting to them. And so for the first time in my life, or for the first time on this journey, I started to feel my own visceral pain. And I also started to feel the emotional pain at the center of my being. Mm -hmm. And this was when I finally started to have an opportunity to listen to the cries from my inside and actually hear and support and allow those Mm -hmm. emotions to surface. I had been in therapy. I had taken antidepressants. I had done all the things that you're supposed to do to heal from an eating disorder. I had watched my friends go to hospital in near death states of starvation. And I was acting out, losing my gums, not able to manage my own symptoms Mm -hmm. through conventional or traditional ways. I had to go through my body to find solutions to my anguish, to my suffering. Mm -hmm. And that is why as a 
why I say mental health is a body-wide issue and that breath work is the key in. Mm -hmm. Now I'll add to that. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's not just breath work. I'm doing pressure-based work, which Mm -hmm. is a huge element. It's a huge part of the compound pharmacy within body by breath is, and by the way, we don't use concrete sand tools, very soft, squishy, um, tender touch tools to be able to pressurize different parts of the body um, to awaken them, to provide biofeedback so that mm-hmm. you can tune in and listen. So um, th- that's a little bit of that that origin story. And then these practices, what I've found is doing abdominal massage or these type of listening exercises, they scale in so many different places. It's not just people with suffering from eating disorders that can benefit from this. People with low back pain, people with challenges being stuck in some of their upper upper breathing mechanics, not allowing their diaphragm to have a full range of motion and so on. So there's a lot of droplets that I just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's really interesting. I so relate to the story of not being able to feel your body for a very long time and how hard that can be on your mental health. Uh, you know, I, I don't, my story is not exactly parallel. I didn't have an eating disorder, but I had an anxiety disorder you know, undiagnosed from as long as I can remember. And well, let me um, just interrupt you because though they're connected, yeah, right. So that the anxiety disorder or whatever classification, it, it just it'll manifest in a different system. Sure, sure. This is the digestive system and some un, other unmet systems. Same expression of yeah. this anxiety, right? Absolutely, absolutely. No, a hundred percent. And I. I did that similarly, you know, went to therapy when things were breaking down for me. And, and it certainly helped me a lot to be able to, the cognitive piece, to be able to, to, to manage the thoughts or to manage. But it wasn't until I also started doing yoga and mm-hmm. started to be able to feel things in my body that it was, like you said, the sensing systems wake up. Mm-hmm. And when the sensing systems wake up, you can then respond more appropriately for yourself. And uh, this is a section of your book that was just, I just hooked into so much, which is um, talking about proprioception Mm -hmm. and interoception Mm -hmm. and their relationship and how important that relationship is. Um, So, yeah, I wonder if you could just lay that out for people a little bit and then we can we can go in further into that that piece. Yeah, your body thinks and feels. You the language of your body is sensation. And many bodies are challenged with being able to interpret those sensations. Uh, people with interoceptive disorders may feel so by the way, this distinguish proprioception from interoception. Proprioception is the body's sense of itself in place or movement, and it's typically uh, the the feedback from larger muscles and joint capsules that are giving us a sense of where. Interoception is physiological listening. It's our body's subtle sensing system and its ability to sense very refined aspects of our physiology, and um, there are it's a more broader interpretation right now, as I understand it. Bud Craig 
Norm Farb. These are two of the most eminent worldwide researchers on interoception. And so they're the parts of the body or the systems that relay via interoception are your sense of airflow moving in and out of your lungs, the movement of blood, the need to urinate, the mm-hmm. need to avoid your bowels. Sensation of hunger. Yeah, visceral feelings. So feelings within your guts, right? So the feeling of, say, satiety, hunger, sexual desire, and even your emotions, the feeling of your emotions, the sensation of the feeling of your emotions, like your heart alights, um, or that sinking feeling in your gut. These are all via the lateral thalamic pathway in the spinal cord, and these are um, interoception. So proprioception has to do more typically with motor control and motor sensing. And our interoceptive uh, inputs are also zinging and binging into different emotional centers in our brain. And so those feels are, you know, they're both physical, but they're also that kind of that emotional tone. So I like to say, I like to summarize it as my body thinks and feels and um, disorders of sensation can make you very inappropriate in interactions with people, but they can also be very sort of inappropriate with yourself. You Mm -hmm. start, you know, um, chewing on your lip to the degree that you injure yourself, or you can't stop yawning or Mm -hmm. swallowing, um, or uh, you you can't tell that you fully finished peeing. You leave the bathroom, you're like, I think I need to pee some more. You go back in, you go back in. So, I mean, I think most people can relate to having some interoceptive miscuing at some point in their life. But I think most people have a lot more than we realize. (laughs) That's what I'm starting to think. I really am. Because I I have a kid who has sensory processing differences. Mm -hmm. And so noticing that in your kid, then you start to notice little things in yourself. And then you start to notice like, oh, well, that kid really likes to be overstimulated and bangs her body into other kids all the time and really needs to feel that feedback. And you know, annoys other kids by banging into them or that person needs to, we drive down the street sometimes and, you know, someone will drive by with thunderously loud music in their car. And so feel, right. And so feels, we'll say, why do they do that? And I say, well, just because just like you are overly sensitive to that sound, they might be undersensitive to that sound and they feel like they need that to feel balanced and alive. You know, I just think it is so much more present than we, than we imagine, which is why like what you're teaching is so exciting to me to just for us to all have more of that awareness. Yes. And, and so for, for some people that like, um, you know, so it's so interesting because then there's that, then there's exteroception, right? So there's that, the inputs from the outside to the in, which would be, you know, sound, but the vibrations of sound we can discount the vibrations of sound as both a external and an interoceptive of uh, cue, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the the person that loves that booming sound, it might be auditory, but it also might just be, oh, they their body loves the feeling of those vibrations, mm-hmm. skin all the way up to, you know, to tickle them in all their wonderful cells mm-hmm. all over the body. Mm-hmm. So it, it really, it's a vast spectrum. And I like seeing it as a spectrum of simulation. But, you know, the book really does help people whose interoception has been on the dimmer to amplify interoception. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a person whose interoception is unfortunately 
way too acute. So I hypersensitized myself, or perhaps I was already hypersensitive and then I dulled myself with the eating disorder. I mean, this is something for my therapist to, to decide, sure. what if I'm analyzing myself here? Right. Um, I, I just think it's really uh, interesting that I, uh, that, you know, this, this, this dial tone for me, I use my work um, to amplify certain interoceptive things. But then I know that for me, for balance, I have to also do a certain amount of outside to in work to make sure I don't lose myself in myself, Mm -hmm. right? Because you can, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So one thing that I think is really interesting is that my understanding is that people who tend to be more flexible, and I'm not going to use the word hypermobile because that's a whole, that's a whole other thing I'll get into in another podcast. are going to get on. I know, exactly. And I'm going to have someone on to talk about hypermobility. I'm going to have Libby Hensler on. Um, oh, I wrote the forward to yes, her book. I, 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 I knew that because I read her book, so that's why I mentioned it. But, um, but those of us who, uh, you know, tend to be more flexible actually have tend to have lower proprioception. In other words, we need more input into our joints and muscles to feel our mm-hmm. body. And so, making that connection with the work that you do on the balls is mm-hmm. is really cool. That um, that by doing this work, you can just start to wake up the centers, not, not, not to mention make yourself feel better because mm-hmm. people who have lower proprioception love to be hugged or snuggled into things or like, you know, with kids, you can wrap them up in a yoga mat and tell them they're a burrito and then like, you know, squish, squish, squish the beans onto the burrito and swipe the sour cream onto the burrito, you know, and just, and they love that. It feels so good. So yeah. it reminds me of doing that for adults, like a lot that's of the work. The that you book, do. That's in the book. There's body burrito. Oh, I didn't know that. that I missed one that. Of the exercises in the move. Yes. There's so many fun exercises where, yes, you use different um, inventive pressures to give your body a sense of boundary. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that, um, bodies on the hypermobility spectrum really crave is a a sense of centering, right? And a sense of anchoring because the looseness in their fascial tissues and the poor communication of the muscle spindles. So those are stretch sensors within the fascial tissues are just not as loud as people who have more restrictive tissue. Mm-hmm. And so they're just, they're just really not getting a clear sense of place. So their body doesn't feel like it has boundaries mm-hmm. and that can lead to anxiety, anxiety, of you course, don't know where you begin and where the world ends. It's very, very complicated to navigate the eye inside of the, the greater um, other. So uh, I really appreciate, I've got like a I got tingles all over my skin just um, saying that out loud. So um, for uh, for bodies that really crave stability, um, getting grounded, pressures against the wall, pressures um, with fabrics or with rubber mats or br- rubber tools like I use, a really great way of you know giving you a sense of place in your body, but also stimulating stimulating those mechanosensors, the muscle spindles, and areas within the joints that are going to give the sensory motor map a place of, ah, here I am. This is concrete. I'm concretizing and elaborating on the sensory motor homunculus versus this other sort of emotional interoceptive um, right. that we're talking about. So these are different, not that they don't talk to each other, but you know, different. that is why there's also a move chapter in the practical so that you can find those tools that 
give you a sense of place and mm-hmm. that make your body feel safe, mm-hmm. uh, safe and sensed. Safe and sensed. So would you say, uh, just going back to the proprioception and teroception relationship, and it's funny when you said, this is for my therapist to sort out, because it is really complex. And I'm trying to think for myself, like, similar to you, I was always a deep feeler. But I think the problem is that I couldn't delineate between the feelings. So I kind of wonder, when we wake up our proprioception, does it help us clarify our interoception? I mean, I don't know if there's an answer to that or not, or if you've thought about that, but is it, you know, is it that when we get more proprioceptive feedback through the balls or through the work that we do, we then are able to sense those interoceptive cues more sensitively, like we're more sensitive, sensitive to them? I don't know if I can answer that via a specific scientific mechanism. I might need to yeah. call with my friend, Eddie Ulm, who's okay. one of my favorite colleagues that deals with, with reflexes. I think he'd probably have a really great answer. Science of touch. We got to look him up on Instagram, Eddie Ulm, maybe bring Eddie. him on to talk okay. about the body as it relates to reflexes, both proprioceptive and interoceptive. I'd have to deflect that question. But what I, I would say from experience, the ability to tolerate unpleasant feelings or the ability to tolerate pleasant feelings, I think is a a stress threshold that happens through, well, through knowing oneself, through feeling a general sense of safety in the body and in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if your body is lacking a sense of resilience because it is weak, overstretched, or your environmental community, you don't feel safe in that. I think tolerating the feelings from inside your body are difficult. Mm-hmm. And that brings us back to Dr. Stephen Porges and the facility of co-regulation. You know, knowing that you have others to bounce your feelings around with and, and off of that are safe. And this is why, you know, many people hire therapists and need therapists, you know, to be able to reflect back at them their insides. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm kind of going out of scope right now. I don't have a, a scope. In no, but I think you you bring up an important point that I was thinking when you were talking about your own experience of, for the first time, feeling that be- be- belly viscera and then feeling all the emotions that went with it, which is, and you talk about this in the book, which is that this isn't always like self-care, spa, oh my gosh, it feels so good to roll. Like sometimes it can bring up, sometimes it could just be very challenging to feel those feels, right? Yes. On the flip side, what I mentioned before, some people have an intolerance to feeling their own pleasure and they have Mm. an intolerance to feeling uh, bliss. It's hedonic tone, the ability to withstand pleasure and the the ability to withstand happiness. So for many people, as soon as things go right, they're just like, oh, when's the next shoe going to drop? Right. So there's those feelings of internal bliss. Many people doubt that or find those problematic. One of the themes throughout the book is this book should help you build your parasympathetic endurance. And now to the yogis listening, you're like, wait a minute, wait, first of all, what is that? So parasympathetic, sympathetic. So sympathetic 
and parasympathetic are part of our autonomic nervous system. This is as soon as you start to engage in activities, your heart rate rises, your muscle tone rises. This is sympathetic tone. Parasympathetic tone is heart rate slowing, breath rate slowing, muscle tone decreasing. And generally you engage in yoga practices, you're doing sympathetic based work, a little mix of sympathetic, parasympathetic, but all towards the effect of, oh man, I really need to relax. I really need to help my anxiety. I need to chill. And at the very end of class, you get this dessert called Shavasana, right? And by the time we get to Shavasana, hopefully the class has been structured in a way that you're like, I'm really able to give over. I'm just totally relaxing here. But there are uh, many bodies that when they get to this point of this total release, this surrender of sympathetic tone, that their body actually starts to spike into a sympathetic overload, fight or flight, fidget, agitated state. This is called relaxation-induced anxiety, by the Mm way. Um, And so for many people, the challenge of enduring stillness or enduring a parasympathetic experience sets off an unknown and and probably unappreciated and unwelcome cascade of amplification and anxiety. This, so I went off of the happiness and the pleasure thing. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm spinning into this parasympathetic endurance. Yeah. This, I came across a statistic when I was researching the book that it's estimated now with the pandemic and the results of post-pandemic that up to 53% of people live with relaxation-induced anxiety. Wow. Meaning that when they start to go over into the parasympathetic sides of things, they start to get agitated. They start to get anxious, that they're not really able to persist within their biologically given relaxation response. Why? Well, that that again, that's something, a puzzle from their childhood, from trauma or you know, localized environmental things that aren't allowing for them to feel safe enough to let go. So this is a particular interest to me. And I see this in lockstep, well, in lockstep with uh, the ability to tolerate pleasure. Hmm. Anyway, I find relaxation very, very pleasurable, but I think it's also because I was trained into it at a very, very early age. A lot of my core memories were being in yoga nidra um, and having amazing experiences as an early, early and young yoga practitioner. But the tools in this book are geared towards, many of them are geared towards people that have this difficulty that their tolerance for relaxation has been maligned by some insult, by some injury, by something that's happened within their nervous system that isn't really allowing them to rest. Their sleep isn't restful. They grind their teeth. Uh, Legs are twitching. Um, never feeling like you're going into deep sleep. And so many people are wearing uh, readers now on their, you know, the, my husband has the aura ring, you know, that you're actually able to get these readouts on what is the quality of my deep sleep and so on and so forth. So all this to say that I think it's really important that these, these folks, as well as everybody has options for stimulating their parasympathetic nervous system that may not look like meditation and that may not look like the stillness of yoga nidra. 
Um, I like that a lot. Answer questions that weren't asked. Mm, I don't mind if you, if you did, I, (laughs) we both probably have mommy brain and I'm not even sure if I could go back, but, but I think you're getting to an important point, which is that, um, that for those who I, I think, I think, and I, it's funny, I teach meditation. I love meditation, but I, it took me a long time to just be able to sit and meditate in the middle of the day. Like it took me, you know, decades. Um, and I always had to move ahead of time to get to that place of being able to sit and relax. I think what I asked was, um, yeah, yeah. We, what I asked was related to the extreme discomfort that people can feel when they start to feel their body. And when they start to feel the emotions that can come with feeling the body, right? And and so it's like, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. Who knows if they're feeling the emotions because it it doesn't matter. When they're starting to do some of the work that you suggest, and if it feels uncomfortable, like what are some things that they can can do to manage that discomfort? One of the five Ps, and I believe I discussed the five Ps with you when we did the Vegas the Vegas podcast. Yes. I have this outline of five Ps of the parasympathetic nervous system. And the five Ps are really the programming model. And the, the first P in order for programming is perspective. And so what the perspective is, is a mindset or in the yoga space, we call it Sankalpa. And that Sankalpa is a top-down host for the body-based experience that's about to happen. Right. And Sankalpa ideally is a very welcoming samkalpa. Like I am listening mm-hmm. here for you, Jill, if I'm, if I'm talking to myself or I'm here for you, small intestine, or I'm here for you. So is it's something that you're, you're inviting all of me is welcome here. Like right. That's another samkalpa or mindset. I love all of me is welcome here. And so what that does is it gives you an opportunity to have this dialogue because the language of the body is very pre-verbal. It's not like, okay, Jill, here's how I'm feeling today. You put way too many protein bars into me and I am not feeling so good, right? Maybe it is. Maybe you have a very, maybe you have like a five-year-old small intestine that can speak, you know, in complete sentences. But for the most part, the language of the body is like, or whatever it is for you. I'm, I can't be your translator, but it's important for you to, to make, I feel, to make that connection so that you can be the translator, and by the way. What's it? What's the cable that is the is the transmission cable for all this? It's the vagus nerve. So we're 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 setting up an environment where we're welcoming a dialogue to happen from our body to our brain, and that our 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 mind, our this intention, this top down, just keeps saying, "You are welcome. I'm here for you. I hear you. I'm here for you. I want to have this relationship." with my body. I want to learn to trust you. I don't want to malign you. I don't want to put you in jail anymore, put you in, you know, tight pants so that, you know, I, I dominate you like all, whatever the thing is. And I think it's, I think that's what is a step one is, and then can you give it voice? Can you actually, all right, I'm going to be the adult here. I'm going to give voice to you today, small intestine. I'm going to write out 
Is that a song you're singing to me? Or is that some words? Is it a painting? Is it color? Is it? So, I mean, I mean, I don't, I think I might say it once in the thing, but journal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really helpful. And Mm -hmm. there, there, all of a sudden, those are your feelings that, Mm -hmm. you know, how your body feels about you. When's the last time you asked your body how it felt about you? I mean, you probably, I, this way I feel about this. I feel this way about my hip, about my foot. Well, how's your foot feel about you? Mm -hmm. So it's really about creating this, uh, this dialogue, this playful, fun, welcoming space for that dialogue to begin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. So really, this is where you can enlist the power of your brain and your mind. And like you said, top down, set an environment, set an environment up for yourself where you are safe, where you are held, where you are. So you're almost like co-regulating for yourself mm-hmm. so that you can have the experience. And like you said before, if you need outside help with co-regulation, find a safe person, a therapist, a a teacher, a friend who can who can also hold that space for you. I mean, it's one of the reasons it's great to do um, mind body work in a group setting because you you have that safety. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you have a safe structure, teacher, adult in the room who's saying it's okay. Whatever you feel is okay. We're here together. Just keep breathing. Just keep moving. Just keep keep staying with it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into, I mean, obviously the breath is just a huge component of the book. Can I just look <laughs> one more thing? Oh. Since the question was about, well, what do you, what do you say or what, you know, what, then what can somebody do if, you know, with this relaxation induced anxiety, or if they find themselves in the state again and again, well, I would say, let, let your body play, let those parts play and invite them in a playful way to do different novel things. And sometimes you give the, you give that part a toy to play with enough. It, it gets bored of it or it gets tired of it. And then it finally feels like it's, it's okay to not need to raise its hand constantly and, and, hmm. and make you move and make you fidget. And so that, that's why there's so many really fun and when I say fun, I mean novel. I don't mean like everything's going to make you laugh, but there's just surprising ways to coax your body to play with different movements, different pressures, different positions, different breath practices, different mindsets that ultimately I think help to placate and support these parts that are riddled with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just feel like they can't cope with being silent or still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's, that's, that's a big part of the book. And you, yeah. And you offer so many different options, which is, which is great. Like there's so many different inroads for the work that you're doing that you have photographs of in the book and illustrations and all of that. So that's great. So I'm very curious as to how you feel like, obviously we do breath practices in yoga. We do pranayama some of it is more formalized practice, but I think more commonly in a yoga studio space, people might do s- simple u- ujjayi breathing, or they might do occasionally some Nadi Shodhana, occasionally some, you know, skull shining breath. I'm blanking on what that's called right now. Kapalabhati. Kapalabhati, sorry. I'm like, shitali, it's not shitali. But what are some things that you would love for yoga people to take away from the respiratory sections of your book? 
one, that a nose to lungs experience of breath is not all there is to experience of your breath. I mean, your brain is the central generator for respiration. And there's some really interesting science specifically by Dr. Jack Feldman that I, I talk about the, um, the pattern generators of breathing um, within the brainstem, both for inhalation and surprisingly, there is a part of the brain that governs exhalation. This is relatively new science that uh, I, I didn't know about either. It's pretty amazing. But that there are ways to experience breathing that truly go beyond just that, that pathway of nose to lungs. And I want yoga folks to recognize how vast that territory is. Typically in a yoga class, you will be told to breathe. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things about yoga in general is that they've been using pranayama for epochs. And the creativity within yogic breathing is exceptional. Mm-hmm. Some of my formal training was in Bihar School of Yoga Techniques, and they are very, very keen on the bandhas. So lots of dynamic movement of the respiratory diaphragm, different you know positions to access pelvic floor, throat, and so on. But not necessarily exercises that manipulate the ribs in all the magical ways they can be manipulated in order to impact the health of the lungs as well as the spine. Let me say succinct, more succinctly, in the book, I detail what I call three zones of respiration. These zones of respiration are the stuff below the diaphragm. That's zone one, and that typically is our most calming zone of respiration. There's zone two, which is the thorax, the rib cage itself, which is more our amplifying zone of respiration. We need that for sport. Uh, we need that if we're trying to actually protect our guts from anything that may be coming towards it. We stiffen our guts and then we have to manipulate the ribs. And then zone three is the stuff above the collarbones, the head, neck, and face. And we use that in case of emergency. That's when we are starving for air or we're out of breath. You'll see people hike their shoulders up and and really struggle to get breath in. That's the asthma breath. That's the breath I grew up watching my mother do. And it's the breath that I I, I most, you know, try to avoid doing as a, as a regular practice, um, just because it, it, it elicits a massive stress response throughout the human body. Mm -hmm. So in, in body by breath, I detail all of the different muscles that are involved with these different zones of respiration and what it means to the vagus nerve, what it means to the nervous system. Um, you know, your brain body uh, ability to tolerate stress or to create stress. And I think that we can be doing more in the yoga classroom to decorate the lining of the birthday suit. So we think about the the, the, the innermost lining of structure in our body. It is this pneumatic pressure, this pressure coming from respiration. And, and I certainly have been in lots of classes that utilize breath to magnificent detail. And I absolutely love and adore it. And I would really encourage teachers to also think beyond just the same pacing that they're doing to change up breath patterns, to also work on uh, playing around with breath holds, 
uh, both the inhalation holds and the exhalation holds, uh, just to be more, um, I guess, playful with breath as a tool, because it can really unlock mobility for people. And it can also supercharge stability for other people, just depending on how, how it's used. Mm -hmm. It's just like a dynamic tool. I don't think I even know how to answer your question. Mm -hmm. No, I think you answered it. Yeah. Many places uh, that can be uh, supercharged. And then of course, in Shavasana, there's lots of wonderful things that can be done with beautiful strategic breath patterns to keep people alert. So they're not falling asleep in Shavasana but to get a lot out of a relaxation practice, a conscious relaxation practice there by using breath work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I like that you use the word play and playful. I think that's that's a great mindset to have because I think so. we just have so many must-dos in our life and and in our healthcare hygiene and practices. And so to think of this as like, uh, these practices are generative, like they're, and they're going to create more joy. And if you can kind of pr- approach them from a place of playfulness and experimentation and using all of the, all of the, the experimentation that you've already done and laid out for people, that makes it sound really fun. And I, and I like that. How about, um, well, I would love to know what your daily practices look like. And I'd also love to know, I mean, I, I do think that for those of us who practice at home, we might spend more time on breathwork and pranayama, but but in the classroom itself, again, it's like five five minutes probably at the most. So so just in terms of 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 length of time, let's say, how much time do we put in to really start to see some benefit? That's a great question. So there's Brand new research that just came out last month uh, by Dr. Daniel Spiegel and Andrew Huberman, um, their labs up in Stanford, and a number of other uh, researchers, you know, really did the did the work to analyze four different breathing strategies to look at their impact on anxiety. Have you heard about this? Mm-mm, no. Oh, I'm I'm so excited to share it with you because it's like, okay, well, what everybody wants to, well, what's, what's the minimum I need to do to get something out of a breath practice? And it looks like based on what they did, five minutes over the course of a month is profoundly significant hmm. for uh, reducing anxiety and improving positive affect, improving positive emotion and outlook, as well as slowing down the heart rate um, the resting heart rate. Hmm. It's very, very uh, beneficial. And so the different breathing practices they looked at, one was cyclic sighing. So cyclic sighing is it's like Veloma Pranayama. So you love that one. Oh my God. I'm so, so happy. It's like my favorite. It's probably the, one the most. Um, but in the yoga space, in Veloma Pranayama, we do it with a three-step breath. And in mm-hmm. fact, in the book, I call it three-step breath. But cyclic sighing is slightly different. It's one giant inhale with a second topper. So after you reach your maximum inhale, you pause for a moment, and then you top it off with another little sniff of air followed by a long, slow exhale, either out through your nose or mouth. And so they had, uh, they had their cohort do that five minutes a day for a month. The second test or the second breath uh, practice they tested out was box breathing. 
So box breathing is like Samavriti Pranayama, where you have equal amount of breath on each phase of your breath cycle. So they first measured out um, people's CO2 tolerance. By the way, the CO2 tolerance test is in body by breath is beautiful work done by my friend, um, Brian McKenzie, um, analyzed by Dr. Andy Galpin. And so it's wonderful that they're using this now, like it's now published. Yay. <laughs> but anyway, so they measure the CO2 tolerance of these people and then they do a breath practice. That's, you know, like four count inhale, four count hold, four count exhale, four count hold, just based on um, what their tolerance is. And they did that for five minutes. And the third breath was the third breath sequence was cyclic hyperventilation, where you take very rapid 30 count of uh, breaths, followed by a sustained hold at the end of exhalation. Um, and then the fourth, which actually was a control, was just mindfulness breathing. And so that's in my book, I call that witness breath, where you allow breath to come and go, right? Just observe, observing the natural state of your breath. And in the box breathing and cyclical sighing, they saw that these were the most positive impact on anxiety, but the cyclic sighing had a significantly higher ratio of benefits than did the box breathing, hmm. but those were very good. So those would be like, do those. The cyclic hyperventilation uh, was not in that, it, it was not in that party. Like it could actually amplify uh, stress features, mm -hmm. right? To me, it makes a lot of sense. I know a lot of people who love doing that style, um, which is also uh more commercially called Wim Hof breathing. And for some people, it really does help them to sort of slam them into a parasympathetic state. But for other people, it's actually like, you know, combing uh, a cat's hair backwards. It just like, it's so arousing that it, it, it works in, in the negative for them. I just and left a class this week where they were doing it at the end of class, doing the Wim Hof method of breathing. And I couldn't, I couldn't withstand it. Yeah, it's just, it's really interesting how pervasive that's. And people love it and that's fine, but it just didn't, it didn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something that we could talk about in terms of the marketing and branding of yoga, like yoga breathing. Um, like when people think of yoga breathing, they think of things that's very cooling and relaxing. And then Wim Hof breathing is stoking the sympathetic system. Right. So, so in my book does have, um, one cyclic hyperventilation exercise. It also happens to be the exercise that has a half a page of warnings prior to it. There's no other exercise that has a half a page of warnings mm -hmm. that I felt like obligated from, you know, uh, just being prudent and making sure that people didn't have, uh, you know, would become aware of, well, what are these reactions I'm having doing cyclic, cyclic hyperventilation that are related to offloading too much carbon dioxide. Okay. That's another podcast. So, <laughs> so your question was how much breathing do I need to do? And by the way, the mindfulness breathing, very, very helpful. Um, but it wasn't reducing anxiety to the level that the cyclic sighing. Okay. Good to so, know. Mm -hmm. believe me, I love witness breath. I love just watching my breath come and go. But last night when I was waking, when I woke up at 3am and I was watching my breath come and go, I thought, you know what? I should probably do some cyclic sighing right now, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, which I was you know, my husband's next to me. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to wake him up. Mm -hmm. A lot of friction in my nose. I was like, oh no, I can hear my breathing. <laughs> anyway, so you can see why I need breath work, people. You can hear how amped up I get when I talk about this stuff. <laughs> so minimum dose, five minutes. But here's where I'm coming from is you can actually compound that five minutes by adding additional parasympathetic features to it. 
what would those be? So I could do cyclic sign. And by the way, in the book, I call this the chocolate chip breath. Um, I wrote this, uh, I wrote this breathing strategy out for my daughter who succumbed to very terrifying panic attacks at age six when the pandemic hit, just started so having these, you know, I mean, I could see it as, as her parent and as someone who teaches breathing, I could see what was happening to her. Um, not surprising. I mean, lots of small children had uh, a variety of symptoms that were related to all the unknowns in the universe. And so seeing it in my daughter was just, it was just so sad. That's and hard. So the way I taught it to her was that you're smelling this warm plate of chocolate chip cookies and you want to fill your body with that scent of chocolate chip. And then once you think you're full, hold your breath for a moment, let the chocolate chip scent just sink in and then steal another extra sip of that scent and then exhale and let it go either with a sound or out through your nose. And so I call that the chocolate chip breath, but it's cyclic sign. You could also do that just in visualizing a color come into your body or um, another favorite scent, the scent of pine, the scent of mountain air, whatever it is. But if you're an adult, you're like, I don't want to imagine things. I just want to do cyclic sign. And I want to do this compound thing that Jill's talking about. How do I compound other parasympathetic virtues so that I like triple the dose and mm -hmm. really out of this um, impending panic attack, or if I'm in a panic attack. So um, what you would want to do is take advantage of the baroceptor reflex. So you get down on the ground and then lift your pelvis up on a block, or, you know, I use my gorgeous ball because that gives me additional sacral traction, which is a very nice fascial interaction, but you put your pelvis up on something um, that's got some height. How about putting it on the body by breath book? That's helpful. <laughs> it that's is big helpful. enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many inches. And um, when your pelvis is higher than your heart, which is higher than your head, that's going to start a cascade that uh, sensors in the side of your neck within the carotid that are governed by the vagus nerve. They start to sense that too much blood is actually coming towards your brain. And so this little feedback loop happens that actually restricts the size of your arteries, slows down the flow of blood by by slowing down the heart rate and it slows down the breath rate. So this baroreceptor reflex is something that we can take advantage of you know, in any day situations to help us to calm down. So do that with a cyclic sighing um, is very, very, very good for inducing. Very good. Yes. Yeah. Compounding. And getting then, and The last thing on top of that would be to add a mindset. So the mindset might be, I, uh, I allow myself to relax completely or I am completely, I, relaxation completes me. Something that allows you to wind down. Maybe the word relaxing is triggering for you, but you find a message to give yourself while you're doing that. And, and that can be very helpful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned um, uh, doing the chocolate chip breath for your daughter. How open are your kids? This is purely personal interest question, but how interested are your kids in what you do? You can, you can fix your friends and you can fix your foes, but you can't fix your family. Yeah. I'm so glad it's not just us. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, my son, my son is very teachable. Let me just say he's very coachable. Um, my daughter is less so. She just has, everything is set in her mind, how things need to go, what, um, what, what, she, anyway. what makes sense, what doesn't, what she's interested in. And, um, I, I definitely learned from her and her independence and her determination and her passion. And I just I have love to it. Get out of the way and, you know, hopefully give her guardrails 
and hugs when she wants them because she doesn't always want them. <laughs> son is like, he's, you know, he always wants hugs. He always wants touch. He always wants to be played with. He, you yeah. know, but Lila loves to be spun. So when you, when you were talking earlier about, you know, kids are, kids each have their own little sensory, um, sensory fun, like pl- the house where they're sensorily most met she's the dizzy girl. So yeah. if you just pick her up and spin her and spin her and spin her. She's the happiest kid ever. So she just likes massively high amounts of a stimulation like that. And yeah. Lots you know, of vestibular like, input. Vestibular yeah. input. Yeah. Upside down, sideways, turn me around, throw me around. That's when I'm happy. Sophia's similar. She loves um, amusement parks because of that. Mm-hmm. She'll go on the scariest ride. All of her friends will be crying. They won't want to go. And she's like, more, more. She'll get off and say, again, again. Lila like, and her need to go together. They do. I'll meet you at Legoland. Legoland. Yeah. Come, please come. Yes, we are a mile away. I would meet you any day. Absolutely. Stay with you. You could. You what? absolutely. Yes, 100%. I have a coupon because we bought like a Lego and we have a coupon that we can, like the kids go free. So we'd love it. We'd love it. We'll work that out this summer. Well, thank you so much, Jill. I think this is a good spot for us to stop. I feel like we covered a lot of ground and I know people are going to go get your book. Go pre-order it now. They will get it in a week, I think, if they pre-order it now. Yeah, so the pre... I don't know when you're... Is this coming out? Monday. Oh, great. Yes. The book hits is shipped out on February 28th. That's publishing day. Very excited about that. But we are offering pre-order perks. And so this is only good through 11.59 p.m. um, February 27th. So make sure that you pre-order before February 28th. And I'm doing a live online free Vegas Voyage diaphragm tune-up class for everybody that's pre-ordered. And so I'll send you that link, Andrea. Okay out with, um, you know, with the show notes and the other pre-order perk is that everybody that, um, does the pre-order and submits, you know, their information to us gets a free class in my online move, breathe, roll classroom. Awesome. Um, there are hundreds of classes to choose from. And many of them are in the theme of, of body by breath that are very parasympathetic. And there's others that are like, Oh, all about the ankle and jumping. So I have a whole class just on the, on the thumb. Yeah. So, choose anything there. And then the last, um, there's a a bonus contest, which is somebody who pre-ordered will get a seat in my late April body by breath immersion. I think that's April 23rd, 24th, 25th, but that's a three-day course. Um, It's a certification, uh, excuse me, it's a, a practitioner course where there are obviously yoga alliance credits. And there's also IAYT, um, International Association of Yoga Therapists. Amazing. For that three-day course. And that really is, that's the course that is the complement to this book. So the the course will teach you um, how to do program design for yourself, for your community, and also coach you in a million different ways of how to, well, how to make recovery sexy. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how, how, and, 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 and how to be able to um, excite uh, your, you know, communities about the value of recovery and what that does for your overall health. And for performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, sorry, you might've mentioned this, but is there a specific link they need to use to pre-order for those perks? No. So the pre-orders can be done through whatever your favorite bookseller is. Okay. I mean, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target. You're, um, for my non-US and non-Canadian folks, Amazon is not yet selling to you only the digital copy. So to get the hard copy, 
there is a um, there's a, a thing called book depository with free worldwide shipping. And so that's what we've been recommending to people is that they okay. use book depository because they'll they'll ship it to New Zealand, to Australia, to Indonesia, a, uh, you know, Asia, Africa, Middle Middle East, all over Europe, um, uh, South America. So please check out Book Depository because they they definitely will be shipping the book on the correct date, and it's free for great you know, worldwide. Like that's that's huge. Yeah, know, absolutely. Trying to get my book, I have a number of of folks in Iran um, saying I can't get your book, but the book's not out yet anyway. But um, I mean, I, I guess there might be some zones where they don't have shipping, but I hope that we can you know figure that out for everybody at, at a certain point. Yeah, work around that. Okay, okay so, great. And you'll have the link. Um, it's, it's on, I'll just tell you, you just find it on our, we have a website called bodybybreath.com. When I decided to write the book eight years ago, the, the title came to me immediately. And I said, let's buy this, you know, URL. So it's bodybybreath.com and you'll be able to, to scroll down, learn more about the book. And then also you can see the perks and then also the link to be able to submit your information to be, to receive the perks. And by the way, okay. if you take the class, the live class, it will be recorded and available to everybody for 30 days following broadcast. Okay, great. Awesome. 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 Okay. And then just the one last question is at, what is your practice like these days? Well, I'll tell you my most coveted practice these days is actually singing. And it's something I talk about in the book a little bit, but the, the act of singing is an extended exhalation plus vibration through all of the bones and fascial tissues of the entire body. And I have found it to be one of the most regulating practices for me. In the book, I don't teach singing, but mm -hmm. I certainly I certainly work with a lot of vocalists. And um, having come back to singing after being away from it for a couple of decades, that's a whole other story, but it's part of my, my bulimia didn't allow me to excel in the art that I loved the most, which was, mm. which was singing. Uh, I watched so many of my colleagues in college just like, yeah, sur surpass me because I was having so many vocal problems related to my mental health issue, which was mm. part of the bulimia. So anyway, I dropped singing, but I picked it back up during the pandemic. And um, and I knew that the work worked for singers because I had been working with singers, but I just hadn't been trying it out on myself. So my personal practice looks a lot like rolling with gorgeous balls, especially on the thorax and working through, I would say zone one, zone two, zone three, especially zone three, because the zone three is the, those stress muscles of respiration that turn on just from holding a cell phone day in and day out mm -hmm. or being in forward head posture at the computer. So I'm always doing things to uh, make sure that my head is on top of my body instead of in front of my body, mm -hmm. uh, doing uh, really fun breathing work with double gorgeous balls. That's my new thing right now. I love using two gorgeous balls on my rib cage, my abdomen, my chest, there's a bunch of double gorgeous ball practices in body by breath. And I will say that those came out of necessity during the early pandemic. I was so freaked out like everybody else. And I just discovered this, what I would call a four-handed massage, sticking two gorgeous balls in my, on the, in the sides of my lower back. I, what, what I call the lateral Rafe release that's on my, it's on my Instagram feed. I've reposted it a million times, but this lateral Rafe release coupled with very, very small spinal movements became the most soothing, get me back to one 
get me out of drama hmm. movement that I mm-hmm. literally ever conceived of ever. So mm. I'm like so in love with double gorgeous ball stuff. Anyway, so I'll do that and then I'll use two gorgeous balls on um, my chest and then I'll do vocal work. And to me, that's like, mm, that's my parasympathetic practice right now. That is the sweet spot. I'm with you. I used to sing too, and it is incredibly uh, soothing. Therapeutic. Yeah, therapeutic. You're reminding me of that. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe a little inspiration here from you, Jill. Well, let's together. So we've got two things to do together. We got Legoland and we got karaoke. <laughs> that sounds so good. Sounds so good. We can even sing at the top of the roller coaster if we have to. I won't be on the roller coaster. You'll be on the highlight. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. I can I'll do be with that. Asher because he's too short for the roller coaster. So. Okay. All right. Yeah. I can manage. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jill. So good to talk to you. Likewise. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 289, and you will find there links to past interviews with Jill, links to how to buy her book, how to find out about her book tour, and how to join the book club where her book is the very first selection. I should also mention that the book club is quarterly. I do not want to rush through things. I don't want any of us to feel like we are in over our heads, reading yoga and mindfulness and meditation books. That would kind of be counterintuitive, right? So we're not going to do that. We're going to take our time and absorb things and learn together. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it or write a review or give it a rating and just tell your friends about it. It's, it's really helpful and it keeps me going to see that you are all out there listening. Okay, everyone, thank you so much. Until next week, enjoy your practice.